When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the ancient world. Episode 36, and then what happened? Well, here we are, at the end of the ancient world. I've been thinking about this episode for a long time, and I've been jotting down notes on all the stuff I wanted to talk about. I have no idea how it's all going to fit together, but here goes. First off, while I am officially stopping at 500 BC, I thought it'd be fun to give a quick synopsis of the next few hundred years, up through the next big historical milestone, the conquest of Alexander. Or, for cultures where that wasn't really relevant, maybe even a bit farther. Let's start with Greece and Rome. With Greece, you've got the Persian Wars raging for the first half of the 5th century BC, and Athens coming out of that conflict at the top of its game, pretty much running the whole Greek show through its control of the Delian League. And if you want to learn about the Persian Wars, please do yourself a favor and read Persian Fire by Tom Holland. It's simply one of the best books I've ever read, period. In Greece, the second half of the 5th century BC was dominated by two main factors. The first was the full flowering of Athenian culture. Philosophy under Socrates and Plato, theater under Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, and Aristophanes, history under Herodotus, medicine under Hippocrates, sculpture under Phidias, the construction of the Parthenon, pretty much the whole shebang a lot of it on the watch of the great Athenian general and statesman Pericles. The second factor was the Peloponnesian War with Sparta, which would end, in 404 BC, with Sparta on top, where they'd stay until the middle of the 4th century, when the Thebans briefly rose to prominence, smacked the Spartans around a bit, then collapsed just as quickly. In the wake of all this internal warfare, mainland Greece was in no shape to resist when King Philip II of Macedon came a-conquering. And, speaking of a-conquering, Philip just happened to have a young son named Alexander. For Rome, it would be more of a long, slow slog to prominence. The 5th century would mainly be warfare against other Latin tribes, like the Equi and Volsci. 
In the early 4th century, the Romans conquered their first major Etruscan city, Vae. But just when things were looking awesome, they suffered a massive invasion by the Gauls, and Rome ended up getting beaten and occupied. That's going to leave a scar. The Romans stayed put, built walls, got their mojo back, and spent the rest of the 4th century fighting wars against the neighboring Samnites. The eventual Roman victory spooked local Greek colonies, Tarentum in particular, who called in a Greek king and general named Pyrrhus to cut them back down to size. The Pyrrhic victories he won were, well, Pyrrhic victories, and didn't really accomplish much. By the time he headed back home for good, in 272 BC, most of Italy, from Alps to boot heel, had fallen to the Romans. Within another ten years, Rome found itself embroiled in a war with its old ally Carthage for a control of Sicily. The rest of the 3rd century would be dominated by the Punic Wars, Punic meaning Phoenician, that Rome would eventually emerge from as a major world power. If you want more detail on any of this, or anything else about Roman history through the fall of the Western Empire, you simply must listen to Mike Duncan's The History of Rome. It's the undisputed world champ of history podcasts, and with good reason. We've also got to give Carthage its due respect. While Rome was still playing whack a tribe back in Latium, Phoenician sailors were heading off beyond the Pillars of Hercules to explore the coasts of France, Britain, and Ireland. One major 5th century expedition, under the Carthaginian general Hanno, cruised southward along the African coast, planting colonies in Morocco and Mauritania, and exploring as far south as Guinea-Bissau and the Niger Delta. At the same time, the Carthaginians were also aggressively colonizing the western Mediterranean, mainly to cultivate more agricultural land and dump some of their surplus population, but also, you know, just to fly the Punic flag. The Carthaginians continued to use Sardinia for agriculture and mining, to the general detriment of the population. They also started to push more aggressively into Sicily in 480 BC, the same year the Greeks were fighting Xerxes, but ended up burning their fingers in a conflict with the powerful Greek city of Syracuse. In the aftermath, Syracuse even claimed that the Carthaginian invasion had been coordinated with the Persians, which was not true, but the Sicilian Greeks kind of ran with it anyway, casting every act of Punic aggression as another barbarian attack on Greek enlightenment. Anyway, by 410 BC, the Carthaginians had worked their courage back up and dove back into Sicilian affairs with a vengeance. The result was a series of wars, mainly against Syracuse, that flared on and off over most of the 4th century. In 310 BC, one tyrant of Syracuse, Agathocles, even ran a Punic blockade to attack Carthage directly. The same tactic later used, successfully, by the Roman general Scipio Africanus. Alas, Agathocles was no Scipio, and the most he could force was another in a long series of peace treaties between Greeks and Carthaginians in Sicily. In the early 3rd century, the Greek general Pyrrhus, 
in a bit of downtime during his conflict with Rome, was even hired by Syracuse to swing by Sicily and knock the Carthaginians around a bit. Which was not as strange as it sounds, considering that at the time, Rome and Carthage were allies, and Pyrrhus also happened to be the son-in-law of Agathocles, the former tyrant of Syracuse. Anyway, accustomed to fighting and beating Roman legions, Pyrrhus made pretty short work of the Carthaginians, and managed to drive them back to a single city on the western tip of the island. But, story of his life, Pyrrhus never quite managed to close the deal. When he finally headed back to Greece, the Carthaginians reclaimed their territory, and things went back to the status quo. After that, with Rome expanding aggressively into Magna Graecia, it was fairly inevitable that Carthage and Rome would end up in conflict over Sicily. Not only because the island was resource-rich and lay directly between their two territories, but also because the Greek cities of the island kept calling on either Carthage or Rome, sometimes both, to back them in disputes, usually against other Greek cities. For those craving more info on Carthage, from its foundation to its destruction by Rome, I want to recommend another great book, Carthage Must Be Destroyed, by Richard Miles. The Persian Empire, like I mentioned last episode, kept plugging away under Darius and his successors. The major phase of the Persian Wars with Greece wound down around 479 BC, with neither Darius nor Xerxes having much to show for them. Xerxes was assassinated in 465 BC, and succeeded by his son Artaxerxes, who formally made peace with Athens in 449 BC. He also moved the Persian capital from Persepolis to Babylon, dropped the semi-dead language of Elamite from Persian inscriptions, making it a really dead language, and declared Zoroastrianism the official state religion. He apparently did not teach his sons to play nice, since his official heir was killed by his brother, who was then killed by his brother, who ascended the throne in 423 BC as Darius II. Darius II is mainly known for backing Sparta, the eventual winner, in the Peloponnesian War. He was also the last king to be buried in the royal necropolis of Noxirustum near Persepolis, along with Darius I, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes. The necropolis is really cool-looking, and you should check it out online sometime. Following Darius II's death in 404 BC, the same year Sparta defeated Athens in the Peloponnesian War, the empire got caught up in a major civil war between the crown prince Artaxerxes II and his younger brother Cyrus. Cyrus, the current Lydian satrap and longtime ally of the Spartan king Lysander, promptly hired 13,000 Greek mercenaries and marched on Babylon. Things didn't go well, and the Greeks, including the historian Xenophon, ended up having to fight their way back home through enemy territory. But, you know, at least he got a book out of it. Artaxerxes II would end up ruling for 45 years, the longest of any Persian king. 
Early in his reign, he successfully manipulated Sparta, Athens, and other Greek cities into a major conflict, then set the terms on the subsequent peace, giving Persia absolute control over Ionia and Cyprus. He also moved the capital back to Persepolis and started a huge building program all across the empire, including special temples to Zoroaster, which he used to rake in a lucrative temple tax. No fool he. We also know he really didn't teach his kids to play nice. After he died, in 358 BC, no less than eight sons and sons-in-law died by each other's hands before Artaxerxes III finally came out on top. As king, Artaxerxes III is mainly known for defeating the Egyptian pharaoh Nectanebo II and reclaiming Egypt as a Persian satrapy. What's that? When did Egypt stop being a Persian satrapy? I'm glad you asked. As you may recall, Egypt was second maybe only to Babylon in its passion for revolting against foreign rulers. And while the Egyptians kept things pretty low-key while Darius I was alive, they launched major revolts when he died, when his son Xerxes died, and when his son Artaxerxes died. All were successfully put down, but things remained at a constant anti-Persian simmer. When Darius II died in 404 BC and the civil war broke out between his sons, Egypt saw its golden opportunity. Enter Amirteus, prince of Sais and longtime anti-Persian guerrilla fighter. Declaring himself pharaoh, he managed to kick out the Persians and extend his authority all the way down to Aswan. After five years in power, Amirteus lost his throne to another native ruler named Nefertes from the eastern delta city of Mendes, who defeated Amirteus in battle and had him executed in Memphis. Nefertes and his 29th dynasty successors spent the next few decades fighting to keep Egypt independent, while also launching major building and renovation projects across the kingdom. In 385 BC, after imposing peace on the Greeks, Artaxerxes II launched a major three-year offensive against Egypt, but was eventually driven off by a joint Egyptian-Athenian army under the pharaoh Hakor. In 360 BC, Nectanebo II enlisted the aid of a Spartan king, seized the throne from his uncle, and inaugurated the 30th Egyptian ruling dynasty. His first decade in power was pretty mellow, since Persian princes were too busy killing one another to give Egypt much thought. But in 351 BC, Artaxerxes III launched a year-long campaign to retake Egypt, which Noctanebo II managed to fend off with the help of Athenian and Spartan mercenaries. The outcome made Persia appear weak, and several territories took the opportunity to revolt. In a bit of history repeating itself, Egypt was eventually betrayed into Persian hands by a Greek military advisor and mentor named, well, Mentor. Sent by Nectanebo II to support a rebellion in Cyprus and Sidon, Mentor ended up selling his services to Artaxerxes III, then leading Persian forces back to Egypt and crushing the Egyptian army at Pelusium. By 342 BC, Persia had retaken the entire country, 
and Nectanebo II had fled into exile in Nubia. And here's an epic milestone. It would be 2,300 years before a native ruler would once again control Egypt. But, of course, the Persians had only about a decade left to savor their victory before Alexander and his general Ptolemy came calling. Babylonia remained feisty, and while it kept things pretty quiet while Darius I was alive, the region made its big play for freedom a few years into Xerxes' reign. The Persian satrap, Zophyrus, was apparently killed, and two local nobles named Belshamani and Shamashariba were proclaimed kings of Babylon in quick succession. Just as quickly, Xerxes sent his brother-in-law, Megabizus, to capture, torture, and kill the rebels. Check, check, and check. The city of Babylon also suffered some repercussions, which, depending on who you read, ranged from having the statue of Marduk removed, to having it destroyed, to pretty much having all the city walls and temples of Babylon razed to the ground. Either way, Xerxes also showed his disdain for the region by removing King of Babylon from his list of royal titles, which is kind of the ancient equivalent of unfriending them on Facebook. While Cyrus, Cambyses, and Darius had given Babylonia plenty of royal attention, Xerxes and his successors were too preoccupied with Greece to invest in the necessary upkeep. Adding insult to injury, the main Persian royal road, running from Susa to Sardis, bypassed Babylon entirely, isolating the region from crucial imperial trade. The Persian adoption of Aramaic as its lingua franca soon rendered Akkadian and Sumerian the province of priests and scribes, and eventually both languages and the ancient history and culture they documented were mostly forgotten. So, score one for Ashurbanipal and his huge buried library at Nineveh. Only a few arcane disciplines, mathematics and astronomy, astrology and divination, continued to be developed by Babylonian scholars. Their practitioners became known to the West as Chaldeans, in a nod to the last pre-Persian ruling dynasty. The term soon became a byword for magic and mysticism. With the coming of Alexander in 331 BC, Babylon would once again have its moment in the sun and be restored as both imperial capital and center of learning and trade. But the moment was fleeting. Within 50 more years and the deportation of the majority of its citizens to the newly established Hellenistic capital of Seleucia, the history of Babylon virtually comes to an end. Now let's talk Urartu, or maybe Armenia, or maybe both. In the Behistun inscription of Darius I, he discussed crushing a rebellion in the region. The Akkadian script called it Urartu, the Elamite script Harminoia, and, perhaps most importantly, the old Persian script named it Armenia or Armina. This apparently wasn't a simple linguistic difference. 
Way back in episode 23, I briefly mentioned how the Median King Syaxares spent the first few decades of the 6th century BC wiping the floor with a series of Urartian kings, ending with Rusa IV in 585 BC. I also mentioned that the Median assault was so devastating that Urartu essentially went the way of Assyria, passing from the earth and into the realm of legend. Which, of course, begs the question, then who led the Urartian rebellion against Darius I around 520 BC? It turns out that in the time between the Median conquest and the coming of Darius, the region had been taken over by a people known as the Phrygio-Armenians. In other words, people ethnically related to the Phrygians, who spoke a Proto-Armenian language. As you may recall, the Phrygians entered Anatolia in the wake of the Bronze Age collapse and filled the void left by the collapse of the Hittites. Apparently, the Phrygio-Armenians, who I'm just going to start calling Armenians for convenience, had migrated further east and staked out land in western Urartu by the time of the Median assault. After Urartu was crushed, the Armenians moved in, with Media's blessing, and occupied former Urartian population centers. Mixing with remnants of the Urartian population, the resulting culture became a fusion of the two. The Armenian royal dynasty were the Orontids, who ruled the region on and off for most of the next 400 years, first as client kings to the Median and Persian empires, then as independent rulers of the succeeding Sophini and Comagene kingdoms. The earliest known Arontid king was Arontes I Sakavachats, who took power around 570 BC. He ruled from the capital of Yervandashan on Lake Van, commanded forces of 40,000 infantry and 8,000 cavalry, and married his daughter, Tigranuhi, to the Median king Astyages. His son and successor, Tigranes, ruled from 560 to 535 BC, and was a favorite hunting buddy of the Persian king Cyrus the Great. Tigranes' grandson, Hydarnes, likely ruled at the time of the rebellion against Darius I. Whatever role he may have played, it apparently didn't cost him his job, since he was succeeded by the Arontid kings Hydarnes II, Hydarnes III, and Artashir. In 401 BC, Artaxerxes II gave his daughter in marriage to the Arontid king Arontes I, son of Artashir, likely to thank him for his support in the recent Persian civil war. Orontes I was also formally installed as satrap of Armenia and Matayani, or Matani, and it's kind of fun to hear that name still floating around. In 381 BC, Orontes I engineered the Persian reconquest of Cyprus, which had rebelled under the Cypriot Greek king Evagoras I, but soon fell out of favor with the royal court and found himself booted westward to rule over Mysia. In 362 BC, unhappy with his forced relocation, Orontes I rebelled against Artaxerxes II. 
Other Anatolian satraps joined his revolt, and Orontes I leveraged this backing to work a separate deal with the Persian king. The rebellion collapsed, and Orontes I emerged with ownership of most of the Aegean coast of Anatolia, which sounds like a pretty sweet deal. Apparently not sweet enough, because Orontes I revolted again shortly after, and continued doing so right into the early reign of Artaxerxes III. Finally, around the mid-4th century BC, the two kings reached a deal— one that secured rule of the satrapy of Armenia for Orontes' son, Orontes II. In the meantime, all his rebelling against Persia had also made Orontes the darling of the Athenians, who gave him a golden wreath, which is always nice. In 331 BC, Orontes II led Armenian troops under the Persian king Darius III against the army of Alexander the Great. Which was kind of awkward, since Orontes II's own son, Mithrenes, had recently surrendered and was now fighting in Alexander's army. Regardless, the ensuing Battle of Gogamila would be the beginning of the end for the Persian Empire. But the Orontids would weather the storm just fine. Mithrenes, having backed the winning side, would end up running Armenia under the Macedonians. Let's wrap up this section with a lightning round, starting with Cyprus. In Egyptian territory since 570 BC, Cyprus was captured by Cambyses II in 526 BC, possibly as a warm-up to his invasion of Amos's Egypt. The fact that Phoenician Cypriots backed Persia, while Greek Cypriots backed the Greeks, meant that the next few centuries were punctuated by major intra-island conflicts. When Greek Cypriots joined the Ionian Revolt, the Persians crushed the uprising, then allowed Phoenician Kidian to dominate the island. In the early 4th century BC, the Cypriot Greek king Evagoras I conquered all of Cyprus with Athenian help, then declared independence from Persia, which lasted for about 10 years, until Artaxerxes II sent Orontes to take it all back. In coordination with King Tennis of Sidon and backed by Nectanebo's Egypt, Cyprus rebelled again in 350 BC. By the time Artaxerxes III finally reconquered all three territories, the Macedonians were already looming on the horizon. The Scythians finally got their act together during the 4th century BC under a king named Ateus, who imposed centralized rule and went on to conquer a large portion of Thrace. Ateus also battled against the Bosporan kingdom an independent Greek territory in the northern Black Sea that would eventually fall to King Mithridates I of Pontus. Well into his 90s, Ateus would finally be killed in battle by King Philip II of Macedon, the father of Alexander. Though the Scythian kingdom lingered on, the next century would see it fall prey to invading tribes of Celts, Thracians, and particularly Sarmatians. After spending the next two centuries clawing their way back to regional dominance, the Scythians would finally be crushed for good in 108 BC by Mithridates VI, 
the famous Poison King and soon-to-be great enemy of Rome. Okay, so, so far this has all been very Mediterranean and Near East-centric, which is a comment I've heard a few times about the general content of the series. Like I mentioned way back in episode 1, my intention was always to cover all major world civilizations everywhere, from the beginning of human civilization down through 500 BC. Unfortunately, I learned pretty quickly that the archaeological evidence and written historical records for civilizations vary drastically. And I mean drastically. For some, there was really only enough information to discuss them in generalities, without the kind of details on individuals and actions that make for a compelling narrative, which tends to make things less fun for me, the podcaster, and for you, the listener. Which is a long way of saying that I really, really wish I was able to find the same level of detail about, say, Harappan or early Vedic India, or the early Americas, or early China, that's out there about, say, late 6th century Athens. I'd love to cover the rise of the Maya, or the mound builders of North America, or the early architects of Stonehenge, using even a fraction of the information available on, say, Artifernes. But without straying too far into conjecture, it just wasn't possible to do so. That said, I'd like to encourage anyone out there who's interested in any particular civilization or time period, especially one they think may have gotten short shrift in this series, to do some research and create a series of your own. And please let me know, because I would love to hear it. But anyway, since it's been a while, I thought it would be fun to take a whirlwind trip around the globe and remind everyone where things were heading, major civilization-wise, around 500 BC. Let's start in the east and make our way west. In 500 BC, the eastern Zhou dynasty of China still ruled over a small territory centered on the capital of Luoyang, while powerful dukes ran 16 other Chinese territories as all but independent states. It was an era of near-constant warfare, and a fertile breeding ground for new philosophies, including Confucianism and Taoism. The next few hundred years would see the first widespread use of iron tools and weapons in China, as well as the growing centralization of Chinese rule, first into seven large kingdoms, and finally, in 210 BC, to unification under the first Chinese emperor, Shi Huangdi of the Qin. Under Shi Huangdi, the Qin built roads, walls, and a bunch of terracotta warriors and also standardized laws, currencies, and the written Chinese language. On the downside, Shi Huangdi had zero tolerance for opposition, and the regime soon grew to be feared and despised. Shortly after his death, centralized rule once again collapsed, and would only be restored under the later Han dynasty. In India, the 16 great Mahajanapadas of 500 BC coalesced into a mere half-dozen a century later. The most powerful of these was the territory of Magadha, which, under the rule of the expansionist Nanda dynasty, spent the mid-4th century BC conquering the entire Gangetic Plain. 
Unpopular due to its high taxes, the Nanda dynasty was overthrown in 321 BC by a young military commander named Chandragupta Maurya. Maurya took advantage of the disarray following Alexander's brief visit to the region, which had broken Persian rule but left a power vacuum in its wake. As emperor, Maurya spent his first few decades retaking the Indus Valley and western uplands from Alexander's satraps. In 305 BC, he briefly came into conflict with Seleucus I Nicator, one of Alexander's former generals and founder of the Seleucian Empire. Maurya apparently bested the Macedonian who ended up ceding large chunks of territory west of the Indus, and also giving him his daughter's hand in marriage. In return, Maurya gave Seleucus 500 Indian war elephants, which would play a decisive role in the upcoming Battle of Ipsus. Only a few years later, at the age of 42, the Indian emperor renounced his throne, became a giant monk, and feeling that he'd already lived a full life, fasted himself to death. So there you go. Maurya's son, Bindusara, went on to conquer southern India, and Bindusara's son, Ashoka, nearly completed the project of Indian unification. Ashoka began his rule in a pretty dubious fashion, having 500 ministers killed on suspicion of disloyalty, burning some of his harem for commenting on his rough skin, and building an elaborate torture chamber nicknamed Ashoka's Hell. So, yeah, pretty dark. Ashoka spent the first eight years of his reign conquering the Indian territories his father and grandfather hadn't gotten around to. One of the most challenging of these was the southeastern kingdom of Kalinga, a fiercely independent state with a democratic tradition. The war between kingdom and empire soon escalated into wholesale slaughter and destruction, with tens of thousands dead on each side. While Ashoka emerged victorious, the grim toll of the conflict drove the emperor to renounce violence and embrace Buddhism. His subsequent Buddhist kingship would set a powerful example for the region. Over the next 32 years, Ashoka the Great would remain a force for peace and stability, and the empire he governed would turn its attention to large public works projects, including road building and irrigation, and the construction of Buddhist temples, monasteries, and stupas. Ashoka would also leave behind the first written inscriptions in India since the decline of the ancient Harappan culture. Most reflected Ashoka's Buddhist teachings and were carved into sculpted pillars and rocks, some of which can still be seen today. In fact, his famous sculpture of four Indian lions standing back to back was adopted as the national emblem of the modern state of India. After Ashoka's death in 233 BC, the Mauryan Empire soon collapsed to its core territory of Magadha, before finally being overthrown in 185 BC. No native dynasty would ever again rule so much of India. South of Egypt, and just beyond the reach of the Persians, the Moreau civilization of Nubia continued to develop and thrive. 
Over time, their hieroglyphic script gave way to an alphabetic one and native Nubian gods, including the lion-headed warrior god Apadamak, slowly returned to prominence. Rulers maintained both a strong martial tradition and a sizable standing army, and continued to erect small, inclined pyramids for their journey to the afterlife. Trade, gold, and ironwork kept the region wealthy well into the Christian era, when it would finally fragment and fall victim to the rising East African kingdom of Axum. Now let's get into a big one, the Celts. By 500 BC, Celtic-speaking peoples were spread out over a broad swath of Central and Western Europe, from Iberia to Illyria. An early Celtic protoculture, the Hallstatt, first emerged in eastern Germany as early as 1200 BC, roughly the same time as the Bronze Age collapse, and soon spread westward as far as Iberia, Britain, and Ireland. The Celts of this era were ruled by chiefs who lived in hill forts, and maintained their power by controlling a lucrative trade in bronze weapons, jewelry, wine, and other exotic goods. It was these Celts, in particular the Gauls, who first encountered Greek culture via the important Mediterranean colony of Massalia, or Marseille. The Gauls apparently liked what they saw, and by 500 BC the colony was doing a brisk business importing wine and other Greek and Roman luxury goods to the Celtic interior. By the same time, Iberia had become divided between the native Iberian cultures of the south and east, including the Tartessians, who'd already been trading with Phoenicia for centuries, and the Celt-Iberians most everywhere else. In the mid-5th century BC, the Hallstatt culture was subsumed by the more militaristic Latin culture that spread from northern Germany. Latin Celts were ruled by a military aristocracy, who gained status through warfare and reinforced it through the acquisition and display of finely crafted items. After making inroads to Ireland and northern Britain, the Latin culture would continue to dominate both islands over much of the next millennium. Other Celtic groups began to migrate south and east, into northern Italy, eastern Europe, and Anatolia. Wherever the Celts interfaced with more ancient and highly developed civilizations, they tended to become more urbanized. Celtic rulers eventually began to climb down from their hill forts and construct fortified lowland settlements called Opida, known as Castros in Iberia, which became centers of administration and trade. Before long, the Celts adopted writing systems, began keeping records, and even started minting their own coins. Over the next few centuries, many Celtic societies became advanced and powerful, with sophisticated political institutions, including elected magistrates and senatorial advisors. In the end, the Celts had one major flaw. They were accessible enough, prosperous enough, and disunited enough to make attractive military targets for the rapidly growing Roman Republic. Moving back across the Atlantic and into the Andes, 500 BC was the beginning of a major growth spurt for the Chavin culture, centered on the cult center of Chavin de Huantar. 
After reaching its high point around a century later, the complex, for reasons unknown, went into decline and was soon abandoned. The Paracas successor culture, located farther south along the Peruvian coast, held on for a few more centuries, long enough to influence its own successor culture, the Nazca. The Nazca, of course, were responsible for the creation of the Nazca Lines, mysterious kilometer-sized drawings of geometric shapes and animal figures that can only be properly made out by viewing from above. Very crazy, very cool. At the same time, the first real Andean state emerged under the Moche culture, sited in the Moche Valley along the northern Peruvian coast. The Moche carried out large-scale irrigation projects, erected massive adobe pyramids, which may have served as palaces or temples, and learned to brew beer from corn, which sounds creative, but I think I'll stick with Guinness. They were also skilled in metalwork and textiles, particularly in the crafting of elaborate gold masks, and kept written records in the form of painted beans, which, well, sure, why not? Moche culture was militaristic, and the Moche went to war wielding copper axes and large wooden maces, which were used to stun captives for later sacrifice to their gods. By 200 AD, the Moche had conquered local rivals and constructed the equivalent of provincial capitals and forts in neighboring valleys. The next few centuries would see the continued growth of Moche power and influence. In Central America, 500 BC was still the heyday of the Olmec, centered on their occult complex of Leventa, south of modern Veracruz. And just like the Chavin, around a century later, the complex went into decline and was abandoned. Also like the Chavin, the main culprit was likely environmental changes that made the region less desirable. The continuity with successor cultures was a bit more direct with the Olmec, whose traditions were clearly adopted by the Zapotec of Monte Alban in Oaxaca, the architects of Teotihuacan in the Valley of Mexico, and, of course, their most illustrious and enduring protégés, the Maya of the Yucatan Peninsula. Last but not least, I wanted to head up north. Way back in Episode 2, I wrote a short segment on the early mound-building cultures of North America that I ended up cutting for time. So, for all you completists out there, here it is, finally, in condensed form. Let's start with one of the oldest complex cultures in North America, the Poverty Point Culture which thrived from 2200 B.C. to 700 B.C. near present-day Epps, Louisiana. In the center of the Poverty Point site is an open plaza covering about 37 acres, probably the site of public ceremonies, rituals, dances, games, and other community activities. The site has six concentric earthworks, around six feet high and running a total of around eight miles long, separated by ditches. Archaeologists believe that the homes of 500 to 1,000 inhabitants were built along these ridges. 
Poverty Point also boasted a 50-foot-high, 500-foot-long earthen pyramid, as well as a large bird effigy mound measuring 70-foot-high and 640 feet across. These projects demanded large amounts of labor and organization, as well as the cultural will to sustain the effort over several centuries. Artifacts unearthed at the site were crafted from materials from as far away as 600 miles, showing the distant reach of their trading network. While the Poverty Point culture went into slow decline after around 1500 BC, without a direct regional successor, by around 1000 BC the focus began to shift to the developing Adena culture of Ohio. Like its contemporaries in Central and South America, the Adena followed shamanistic practices and engaged in transformative rituals, centered around the belief that humans could change into animals and back again. Like the Chavin and Olmec, and I hope you're sitting down, hallucinogenic drugs may have played a role in these ceremonies. Like their southern predecessors at Poverty Point, the most enduring Adena monuments were massive earthworks. Adena mounds once numbered in the hundreds, but only a small number survive today. The mounds, generally ranging from 20 to 300 feet in diameter, were usually built as part of a burial ritual. First, a wooden mortuary building would be constructed to house the dead. This structure was then burned, with the deceased and some funeral goods inside. A mound would then be constructed atop the mortuary building, using hundreds of thousands of baskets of specially graded earth. Then a new mortuary building would be placed atop the mound. After a few repetitions, you're going to wind up with a pretty imposing structure. The Adena culture thrived until around 200 BC, when it was finally overshadowed by the Hopewell culture. The Hopewell were traders on a massive scale, and developed river-based trade routes running north as far as Canada and south to the Gulf of Mexico. Most of the trade was in exotic materials, which were then crafted and traded within more local systems. The Hopewell also had some degree of social stratification, heralded by the emergence of big men, similar to the NCs of Sumer, except that they were honored for their skill in persuasion, trade, or matters of religion, instead of warfare. The Hopewell culture is also responsible for some of the finest craft and artwork produced in the early Americas. But, of course, their most enduring legacy is, you guessed it, massive earthworks. While some Hopewell mounds were used for burials, like the Adena, others functioned as ceremonial sites, historical markers, or gathering places. In some locations, multiple mounds were laid out to form massive enclosures that may have served as ceremonial centers or defensive fortifications. The Hopewell culture would continue to dominate the eastern U.S. until around 500 A.D., when it finally fell victim to either warfare or a changing climate. So, there you go. Lots of big, fun, impressive mounds and the mysterious cultures that built them. I hope you enjoyed the recap and fast-forward. All these civilizations are just so interesting, it's hard to stop talking about them. 
To me, this whole podcast series has really been an honor and a privilege. Just the off chance that I'm the lucky guy who got to introduce you to Ashurbanipal, or Amos II, or Cyrus the Great, or the Arartians, or the Hittites, or the Minoans, I mean, that is an amazing opportunity. Not to mention how privileged I feel that you've chosen to learn about these folks from me. It's certainly been a great driver to get it right, and to also try to make the series as entertaining and accessible as possible. It's definitely turned out to be one of the most fun projects I've ever done. And, warts and all, I'm really proud of how it all came out. Which would likely never have happened if it weren't for all of you listeners. You are awesome. And I want to thank you for all the subscriptions, blog comments, iTunes reviews, and all the interactions on the Facebook page. We just hit another big milestone a week or two back. Half a million episode downloads. That is way beyond my comprehension. Certainly way beyond my expectations. And I just wanted to thank all of you again for making it happen. I'd also like to give a special thanks to Mike Duncan of the History of Rome for giving me early encouragement, early publicity, and the technical details on how to actually produce this crazy thing. You are all listening to his new series, Revolutions, right? Go right now and listen to Revolutions. And I'd also like to thank my amazing wife, Tracy, for putting up with all the countless hours of me with my nose buried in history books, papers spread all over the couch, muttering to myself incoherently, not to mention the marathon recording and editing sessions. For all that, your enthusiastic support all the way through, and everything else. Thanks, babe. So, we've talked about the past. What about the future? I do have a possible idea for a follow-on series, most likely a mini-series, which will probably come out sometime next year. Unfortunately, I really can't be more specific than that. So please stay subscribed to the current podcast since any new series will come out on the same feed. Also, please keep spreading the word. I'm not trying to make any money off this, so my compensation is mainly in the fun of creating it and the satisfaction I get from knowing folks who are listening to it and enjoying it. So if you can think of anyone who might enjoy the series, please pass it along. I'd also like to encourage you to drop by and leave a message on the blog page, review the series on iTunes, subscribe to the Twitter feed, and or especially come by and join the Facebook page. I know some of you may have issues with Facebook, and I totally understand, but it does happen to be the medium I'm currently using for all informal discussions of the series, Updates, news articles, photos, book recommendations, pretty much everything ancient world. If I start producing a new series, the info will be posted there first. And if I pull together a mini rap party for this series over the next month or two, which I'm leaning toward doing, that info will be posted there too. And I think that's just about it. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you all next time on the ancient world.